0: you to open up this morning to Matthew chapter 3, to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, We're continuing in our special series of sermons entitled God of Glory. My goal in this series is to answer some big-picture questions that I hope will lay a foundation for us that will help us as we return to the book of Romans and begin chapters 9 through 11. So what have we already seen from scripture in this series? Well, we've already seen that the person and the work of God are worthy subjects for our thinking. We've seen that our God is unsearchably great. And supremely glorious. Last week we tackled the big question. Why does everything exist? What is the purpose of everything? And we found that the purpose of everything is that the glorious character of God be expressed. For the enjoyment of God and his angels And the redeemed. Shared joy in God is the purpose of everything. God in creation and in history is showing off his amazing attributes for his own delight, as well as for the delight of created beings, angels and men, with whom God is sharing his delight in himself. Now this morning we come to a fifth big truth, namely that God's delight in himself is a Trinitarian delight. God's delight in himself, God's happiness in God is a Trinitarian happiness, a Trinitarian delight. And so we're talking about the Trinity this morning. And the truths that we're talking about here are weighty truths, and they are wonderful truths. They are truths that lie at the very foundation of our joy in Christ. As I said last Sunday, I I wanted to get us ankle deep into these truths by the end of last Sunday night. The goal this Lord's Day is to get us up to our knees in understanding the depths of who God is and what he's doing in this world. So I want us to look together at one of the passages of Scripture that most clearly reveal the Trinity. And the triune love of our God. So look with me at Matthew 3 and beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, it is absolutely true that the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Uh, The word Trinity was coined by a fellow named Tertullian back in the early church days as a word to describe this reality that we do find in the pages of Scripture. God's people needed a word that would give us the ability to speak about God as three and yet one. And this was the word that came into common usage. The doctrine of the Trinity is our effort to make sense of a certain set of biblical facts. And though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, The facts that the word is meant to represent are absolutely and thoroughly biblical. So what facts? What are we talking about when we use this word Trinity? Well, first, we're saying that there is one God and only one God. Deuteronomy 4.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The, the Lord is one. God is one. Second, the Trinity teaches that the Father is God. The Father is God. So when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, to pray to God, He taught them to pray with these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Father is God. But also the Son is God. The Son is God. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus often spoke about the kingdom of God and the angels of God, but in Matthew 13, verse 41, Jesus says, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So Jesus calls the kingdom of God his kingdom, he calls the angels of God his angels. Jesus regularly called himself the Son of God. Sons have the nature of their fathers, and those who heard him calling himself the Son of God clearly knew that he was claiming to be divine, which is why the people got so riled up when he used this title for himself. Jesus claimed to forgive sins, something only God can do. John 1.1 1, 1 speaks of Jesus as the Word and said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I don't have this one in my notes, but last night I was reading in Romans 9, thinking about where we're going in a, in a few weeks, and I noticed Romans 9 verse 5, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. It doesn't get any clearer than that. The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So so there's one God, and the Father is God, and the Son is God, but the Bible also teaches that the Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit of God is God. Uh, One passage that makes this very clear is Acts 5. You may remember this story. You have Ananias and Sapphira, and they've been dishonest. They've been deceptive. They've lied. And in verse 3, the apostle Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then in the very next verse, Peter says this. You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. You're not lying to a mere human being. You're lying to someone who is divine when you lie to the Holy Spirit. And so we have this group of biblical facts. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And we have to add to these the fact that the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. These are three distinct persons. The Father did not die on the cross. In our passage, it's not the Son's voice who speaks down from heaven. It's not the Father who descends as a dove. These are three distinct persons, and yet each one is fully God, and there is one God. And you say, Justin, can you use an illustration to make sense of this? It's really hard to understand. And My answer is no, I really can't. (laughs) Every illustration of the Trinity falls short. You remember the old legend about St. Patrick, right? That he, he tried to use the three leaves of the shamrock to show the doctrine of the Trinity. And he would say, you know, this, this part of the shamrock is the Father, <clears throat> this part is the Son, this part is the Spirit, they form one shamrock. The problem is, in the Trinity, each person is fully God. So each leaf of the shamrock would have to be the whole shamrock. There just is no way that I can think of, that I know of, to accurately use an illustration that would make sense of the Trinity. Jonathan Edwards gave it his best shot, as you would imagine. His favorite illustration for everything was the sun. He always talked about the sun, S-U-N. He said the Trinity is like the sun in the sky. He said the first person of the Trinity, the Father, is like the sun itself. The second person of the Trinity is like the brightness of the sun. It's the way that you see the sun. It is the brilliance of the sun. And he said the third person of the Trinity, the spirit, is like the heat of the sun, the the life-giving force of the sun. And and there's a lot of truth to that illustration. I, I like that illustration. But even that one falls short for the same reason as the shamrock. In the Trinity, each member of the three persons is fully God and not just a part of God, not one third of God. And so way back in the 300s AD, a church father called Gregory of Nazianzus declared this. He says, I have failed to find anything in this world with which I might compare the divine nature. If a faint resemblance comes my way, that is, if I, if I think for a moment I might have found an illustration, the more significant aspect escapes me, leaving me and my illustration here in this world. At the end of it, he says this, I resolved that it is best to say goodbye to images and shadows, deceptive and utterly inadequate as they are, to express the reality. So, at the end of the day, every illustration falls short. But should we really be surprised at this? I mean, remember what we said. We we are like tiny ants trying to make sense of a being who is unsearchably great and transcendent and utterly beyond us. If it was easy to understand God, that would be shocking, right? However, since God has revealed himself as Trinity, even if we don't fully understand it, and we don't, it is for our good that we believe it, and it is for our good that we stand on it. And I'm not sure how many Christians today realize just how vital this particular truth is. The Trinity is not some side doctrine for theologians in their ivory towers to debate back and forth about. The Trinity is at the very center and at the very foundation of everything we believe as Christians. I love what Michael Reeves says. He says, it's only when you grasp what it means for God to be a Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something that we could shave off of God, we would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing him of precisely what is so delightful about him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that he is so good and so desirable. Yes and amen. Now, I mentioned a while ago that Jonathan Edwards' illustration of the sun is imperfect, and it ultimately breaks down, but there is still some important truth to it. He argued that if God the Father is like the sun in the sky, then Jesus is the brightness of the sun or the light of the sun, whereby we see the sun itself and whereby we see everything else. And there is some great truth to that. Because at the end of the day, everything we know about God, we only know because of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? You know nothing about God that Jesus Christ hasn't revealed to you. What do I mean? Well, how do we know God? We know him from creation. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. We look at the sky. We look at the sun. We look at the trees. We look at our own bodies. We look at, at this world and we see something of the glory of God. But friends, who created the universe? Who is the creator of creation? Who is the actual agent of creation? It is the Son of God. John 1 verse 3, speaking of Jesus says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or again, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation by him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. So you know about God through creation because Jesus created. And had Jesus not created, you would not know the Father. Only through Christ have you known anything about the Father. You say, Justin, I don't just know about God from creation. I know about him from from the Bible. Yes, absolutely. We learn who God is through the Bible. Friends, who wrote the Bible? Who revealed and had written down for us these glorious truths about God? It was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who caused the Bible to come into existence for you. Listen very carefully to 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, talking about who it was that was working in the human authors of Scripture Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So Peter says that while it was the holy spirit who was working to inspire these writers to to write down these things it was the spirit upon them as the spirit of christ that this was the spirit who came upon these men at the direction of christ and revealed to these men what christ was saying jesus is the ultimate word of god and he spoke through the spirit to create scripture This is why red letter Bibles are silly. If you're going to have a Bible with red letters to show you what Jesus said, from Genesis 1-1 to the end should all be in red. Every word of the Bible comes from Jesus Christ. So how do you know God? You know about Him from creation. You know about Him from the Word. And Jesus is the source of all of that. Jesus is the way that all of that is made known to you. He has revealed his Father, creation, and the Word. And of course, it's especially as we look at Christ himself that we really begin to understand who God is. After all, one of the first things that we learn about Jesus is that he is the Son of God. And the moment Jesus comes on the scene saying, I am the Son of God, he implies something. He implies that God is Father. That inside the Godhead, there is a father-son relationship. Isn't that what we see in our passage here in Matthew 3? We have this voice that speaks and calls Jesus son. This is the voice of God, the father. God is father. And this father loves his son. Loves him so much that he declares it publicly so that the crowd could hear it. The, you've been to, the, to a ball game before and, and you know, a, a young man hits a home run and some father calls out from the stands, that's my boy, right? Yeah, that's my boy. This is the Father, as Jesus fulfills one of those great commands that God has given him to be baptized, right? John says, I'm not going to baptize you. This doesn't make sense. Jesus says, in order to fulfill all righteousness, in order to accomplish everything, in order that I may be baptized perfect, in order that I may be all that God has called me to be for the salvation of people. We must do this. Jesus is baptized. And how does God the Father respond? This is my beloved Son, literally the Son of my love with whom I am well pleased, in whom I take great pleasure. We have Father, we have Son in the Godhead. In Psalm 2, and in many places in the New Testament, Jesus is called the begotten Son of God. This means that in some way, Jesus proceeds forth from the Father. But we also learn that Jesus is eternal, that there is no beginning for Jesus. So how can someone eternally exist, have no beginning, and yet be begotten? Well, the key text that helps us understand that is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Make sure you catch this. When John 1.1 1, 1 talks about the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, it's actually talking about a time when there was no time. It's talking about before everything, including time. And it becomes clear as you read the paragraph that John 1.1 is about a relationship between God and his word, father and son, that existed before anything else existed. And here's where our English language fails us a little bit. The Greek word used in John 1.1 is the word logos. It means more than just word. The, The word logos has this idea of thought this idea of idea, as well as this idea of word. God in the Bible is not some impersonal force that just exists. This isn't Star Wars, right, where God is just this impersonal force. No, the God of the Bible is a person. The God of the Bible is a person with thought, idea, and word. And this God knows himself perfectly. This God has a clear idea of himself perfectly. It's just like if you were to look at yourself in a mirror. When you look at yourself in a mirror, you see you as you actually are. The rest of the time, we tend to think of ourselves differently than we actually are, right? Honestly, when I think of myself, right, I think of myself as better looking than I am. You know, skinnier than I am, stronger than I am. And then I see myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's who I am. Am I the only one that does that? So God doesn't ever do that, He never has a misunderstanding of who He is. He has a perfect idea of who he is. And the Bible says that just like your image is seen in the mirror, Jesus Christ is that logos, that idea of God himself that is then so powerful and so strong that it, that idea is himself God. The, the image of God, the idea of God, the word of God, Jesus Christ. And so in that way, Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. As long as there has been the Father, there has been the Father's idea of himself, which is the Son. Sometimes we'll say that a boy is the spitting image of his Father. You ever heard anybody say that? He's the spitting image of his Father. Well, in this case, the Son of God really is the perfect image of Of his father. And thus, when the father sees himself in the person of his son, when he beholds himself, what he sees is utter goodness. What he sees is infinite purity and righteousness and power and mercy. All that the Father is, the Son is. And since the Father is good and therefore loves all that is good with an infinite love, when he beholds his Son, he sees infinite goodness and he responds to infinite goodness with infinite love and infinite joy and infinite delight. The Father loves the Son with a love greater than anything we can ever imagine. This is is my beloved Son with whom I am well, greatly pleased. Over and over again in the Bible, we read that within the Godhead, there is the, the Father's love for the Son. Matthew 12, 18 quotes from Isaiah and tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And how did God, speaking through Isaiah, describe the Messiah? God said, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. In other words, when God speaks these words from heaven, he's speaking something he had already told us before in the Old Testament. He says, When the Messiah comes, this is Isaiah, When the Messiah comes, you will meet the one with whom I am well pleased, the one whom I love. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Isn't it something about parents that they tend to express their love to their children with gifts? They gift to them. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. John 5.20, the father loves the the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So the union of the Father and the Son, the love of the Father and the Son is such that the Father has no secrets from the Son, but rather the Father is doing something, and it's something wonderful, and it's something that the Father delights in, and he has brought the Son into this and said, we're doing this together. All of creation and history is a father-son project in which Father and Son together are taking this project on. Friends, here is why the Trinity is so utterly foundational and important. If God was not three in one, what would we mean when we say God is love? How can God be love if there is no Trinity? You see, Justin, he loves people. That's true. What about when there was no people? Was God still love then? Don't you have to have someone to love in order to be love? <laughs> We're not just saying that God is loving. We're not just saying that that God has a capacity in his nature to show love to someone. No, 1 John says that God is love. It's part of his essence. It's part of who he eternally is. Whenever God has been, God has been love. How can that be if God is just one person and there was nothing else? What did God love, the nothing? No, the reason God is love is that for all eternity, God is Father and Son in union, in relationship, in communion with one another. For all eternity, the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. This love was being expressed and experienced by both before any of us existed. And it was this delight in one another overflowing that is the reason you and I exist. And creation exists and history exists. And Mount Hermon, make no mistake, Islam does not have this God. And Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they do not have this God. These other religions and cults that deny the Trinity, deny something utterly essential about God. They still want to say that God is love, but they make him dependent upon man in order to be love. How can God be love if there's not an object to love? Man must be there. Somebody must be there for him to love. And so their version of God is a less glorious God for whom we must exist in order for him to be loved. Not Christianity. In Christianity, God is love whether we exist or not because of the relationships within the Godhead. In that sense, at the end of the day, the day, the Trinity really does make some logical sense. And it's not having the Trinity that runs into problems of reason. Problems of logic. So you see, when we said last week that God delights in himself and is undertaking all of creation and history because of his delight in himself, what we're really saying is the Father delights in the Son and wants to honor the Son. The Son delights in the Father and wants to honor the Father. And that's why they're undergoing this massive project of expressing the fullness of God's attributes for their own delight and for the delight of creatures with whom they are sharing their joy in themselves. The Son loves the Father. This is why we constantly see Christ submitting to the Father's will. That's what Jesus is doing in Matthew 3. Why is he being baptized? In order to fulfill all righteousness, in order to carry out the plan of my Father. Jesus' love for his Father is shown in his obedience. Did you hear that, Christian? The Son's love for his Father is shown in his obedience. Don't say, I love God and live in disobedience. If you follow Jesus, then follow what He showed you. If you love God, you show it through obedience. And that's what Jesus did. John eight twenty eight twenty nine 29, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning on a cross, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. Listen to this for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What governed Jesus' life in this world? What determined what city Jesus went to and what words he said and what miracles he performed and what acts of obedience he did. It was all about this. What is pleasing to my Father? The Son loves the Father. The Son is like the Father in that he is good. He beholds the Father in all of the Father's infinite goodness. And the Son responds in infinite love. So on the Father's side, you have infinite love towards infinite goodness. On the Son's side, you have infinite love towards infinite goodness and infinite love and infinite love meet in the trinity and by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ you and I are brought into this love and I simply do not have words to help us grasp the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of it and I don't know what was going on in your life when you stepped into this room this morning and I don't know what trials that you're walking through, but dear Christian, do you have any idea how much love you are living in? Do you have any sense of the greatness of your God's love for you? He will work everything for your good, and He will bring you to Himself in heaven where you will swim and oceans of love forever. Where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? In our passage, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the Son from the Father as an emblem of love, right? The Spirit descends as a dove. Why a dove? Well, throughout the Bible, doves are often used as a picture of love. You know where you find doves mentioned a lot other than in the offerings of Exodus and Leviticus? Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. In the middle of love poetry, they're constantly comparing one another to a dove. You're like a dove. You're like a dove. You're like a dove. Uh, Edwards argued that this is why God commanded for doves to be used for sacrifice. That when people were bringing doves to be sacrificed unto God, they were bringing an offering of love to express love to God. Every person standing there watching as that dove descended upon Christ knew exactly what it meant. This father loves his son. And that love, that, that dove, was the Holy Spirit coming upon the son. It was the Holy Spirit anointing the Lord Jesus for the next three years of his ministry. It was the father giving to the son a heaping helping of the Holy Spirit. A heaping helping of his love that would then guide and direct Jesus through his ministry. And Jonathan Edwards' great theory is that just as God's idea of himself, his logos, is the Son, so the Father's love for himself, the Father's love for the Son, and the Son's love for the Father is the Holy Spirit. It is love so powerful that the love itself is a person and a member of the Godhead. Throughout the Bible, the love and the joy that God has in himself is described as a fountain of living waters that God gives to others. And this fountain is called the Holy Spirit. The the pictures that the Bible uses for God's love for himself and his joy in himself and the pictures that God uses for the Holy Spirit are the same pictures. Water, fire, breath, wine, spring, river. And they all refer to God's joy in himself as father and son and son and father. And they all refer to the very spirit of God. And so this is why it's so incredibly amazing that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. It's no accident that the spirit comes upon you and immediately your heart is changed and you love God. God. And you didn't love him before that. And you loved Jesus, and you didn't love him before that. The Spirit seems to be the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. And when the Spirit comes on you, you love them both. And you delight in them. And what you once thought was just that God stuff suddenly means everything to you. Here's another one of those jaw-dropping passages from John 17. The whole chapter's jaw-dropping, but here's three verses from John 17 that are jaw-dropping. Jesus is praying, and he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known, listen, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Think about what you hear in those verses. We learn that the redeemed people are a gift from the Father to the Son. We learn that the Father has loved the Son since before the foundation of the world. We learn that the glory of Jesus Christ is in fact the glory of the Father given in Jesus Christ. We learn that every person that comes to Christ does so because the Father has chosen them and sent them to believe in the Son. We learn that the Son makes His people to know the glory of the Father. He opens their eyes. We learn that as Jesus makes known to His people the glory of the Father, the love of the Father for the Son comes into them and dwells in them and that Christ Himself by the Spirit comes to dwell into them. Three verses. We could preach for a year on those three verses. What could be more astounding than this? That as Christians, we are now and forever included and swept up in the great love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. And this answers so many questions. Why are some people saved? That's the question, right? We all deserve hell. God would be righteous to let every single one of us go to hell. We deserve hell. Why did God choose to save some? Answer, in order to glorify the Son, to show off His attributes of mercy and grace and forgiveness and compassion. And how's He going to reveal all this? In His Son. The depths of the riches of the glory of God's mercy revealed to us in his Son. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why did God design it that way? Why did God design it? That the only way to get to him is through his son. Answer, so that his son would receive the honor, that his son would receive the praise, that his son would receive the glory. The father delights in honoring the son. The whole purpose of redemption is that the glory of God's grace might be made known and experienced and loved in the person of the son. We receive eternal life and Jesus receives eternal praise. And it's a gift from the Father to the Son. We are a bride chosen by the Father and given to the Son. The whole story of the world is the story of an arranged marriage. Should we be surprised when we read in Ephesians 1-3 that we who are believers have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing, every blessing you can imagine and more, God has given to you where? In Christ Jesus. He's lavished us with blessings. He's held nothing back. He's given us himself, the promise of heaven, eternal life, eternal peace, eternal joy, and it all comes to us in one place alone, in Christ Jesus. It is the delight of the Father to make everything center around the Son. Allow me to share with you a parable that I heard recently. A wealthy man and his son love to collect rare artwork. Picasso, Van Gogh, Raphael. And they like to sit together in their home and to look together at these beautiful paintings. The son, however, was called up to serve in the Vietnam War And in an act of outstanding courage, this young man died rescuing another Marine. But while he was rescuing this Marine, he himself was shot in the heart and was killed. A month after the son's death, around Christmas time, there was a knock at the door of his father. And outside was a man dressed in full military uniform. He said to the father, sir, you you don't know who I am, but I am the Marine for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and in the process of carrying me to safety, a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. The man then said, your son often talked to us about your love of art, and so I wanted to bring you this, and he handed a package to the father. He said, it's not much. It's all I could do just to show a token of my gratitude to you. And the father opened up the package, and inside was a painting of his son. He loved the painting, especially the way he felt it captured his son's personality in the eyes. And so the father hung this painting in the place of prominence in the house. Though the Raphaels were there and the Picassos were there, his son's picture hung over the mantel place. And every time visitors would come to the house, he would show them first the painting of his son, among all the other great paintings in the home. A few months later, the father died. And there was an auction of all the paintings of his estate. And many influential people came to bid on these great works of art that the man had collected. And the auctioneer pounded his gavel and he said, We'll start with this picture of the man's son. And there was silence. And a voice from the back cried out, We want to see the famous paintings. And others nodded in agreement. But the auctioneer persisted. He said, well, someone, anyone bid on this painting, $200, $100. And still there was silence. And a different voice cried out, we didn't come for this. We came for the Rembrandts. We came for the Van Goghs. And the auctioneer continued, the picture of the sun, who will take the sun? And finally, one man said, I'll bid $10. This man wasn't an art collector at all. He was the gardener who had served the family for many years, and he didn't have much money, but he would take the portrait of the son. He bid $10. The auctioneer called out, $20? And he won. Going once, going twice, and sold. And the auctioneer put down his gavel. He began to walk away. Wait a minute, the others called out. What about the other paintings? We're here for the other paintings. And the auctioneer replied, The auction is now over. The father placed a stipulation in his will that whoever bought the painting of the son would receive all the others as well. Whoever takes the son gets everything. Friends, here is a principle on which everything else stands. If you have the son, you have everything. All that God offers you, life, joy, peace, security, He offers it only in His Son that His Son may be glorified. And so I ask you, dear friend, do you have the Son as your Savior and as your Lord? Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's time for me to be done, but I want to read one more passage to you. Just one last passage. For you see, just as the Father has designed everything to center on his son and to honor the son, so the Father delights I'm sorry, so the son delights in honoring the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we have this mysterious yet wondrous passage that tells us how all of history is going to end. I don't understand it. I'm going to tell you up front. I, I, I would struggle to preach this passage. I don't understand it. But it is an amazing end to history described for us in 1 Corinthians 15, in which just as the Father has honored the Son, at the end of all things, the Son will honor the Father. Listen to these verses First Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 24 then comes the end when he Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. Now listen to this. When all things are subjected to Him, Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. At the end of all things, just as God the Father has given a people to his Son, so the Son will give those people and himself back to the Father. We're told that the Son himself will subject himself to the Father and that God will be all in all. I don't completely understand what it means, but I know it means this. If you are in Christ... You will spend eternity dwelling in the joyful love of God. May we look forward to the eternity ahead of us, even as we face the trials of today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.